Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Cool Hand Grace Podcast. Each week, we talk through a biblical passage or topic, offer some insight, and hope to point us to the Lord and His place in our lives. I'm Pastor Kurt Witzig, and on behalf of the College Ministry at Duluth Bible Church, welcome. This week, we are going to finish our series on the parables of Luke 15. Having already discussed the storyline of both the younger son and the older brother, this week we will take a look at the father, and most notably the amazing love that he demonstrated. Usually the third parable in Luke 15 The series of three is remembered as the parable of the prodigal son. However, it's more fitting to remember the parable, really, as the parable of the loving father. He's the hero of the story, and it is his love where the spotlight shines. So as you will recall, the parables in Luke 15 were triggered by the Pharisees' negative reaction to Jesus visiting and having table fellowship with various sinners and tax collectors. And it was this reaction that has Luke then saying in verse 3 of chapter 15, so he spoke this parable to them. And the parables we know had three parts. The first was about the shepherd who left the 99 to find the one sheep that was lost. And the second was about the woman who diligently searched for her lost coin. And the third was was the story of the father who had two sons. And it turns out they both were lost in the relational sense with him. And in these stories, we saw there was something that was lost, something was found, and there was rejoicing in community with the one who found the item. Jesus also taught us that in these stories, repentance was being found. Now, in the case uh, of the younger son in the third story, we saw his repentance came about when he was overwhelmed by the father's love and acceptance. It was there in his father's embrace that he abandons his well-thought-out plan to survive, and he collapsed in his father's amazing love. We saw how unconditional love doesn't wait for the correct response. In fact, it produces it, as grace always comes first. So, as we turn our attention this week to the father and his love, it's good for us to answer the question, well, just who is the father in this parable? And the answer might surprise you. But think about it. Jesus is telling this story to the Pharisees who were there in in the physical scene at that point of time. And why is he doing that? Well, because they disapproved of how he was eating and drinking and conversing with sinners and tax collectors. And they couldn't understand that. And the story then intersects with reality and the real-life scene when Jesus tells this story of the two sons, but particularly the part about the older brother. And the older brother, we saw, characterizes the Pharisees. And as the story ends, we wonder, what will they do? The story abruptly ended. So how are the Pharisees, how, what are they going to do? Real life would be then how this story will be finished as the Pharisees have that choice in front of them. 
Now, we compare with real life, that real life setting here for this parable. We say, who is the younger son? Well, they would be the, that would be the sinners and the tax collectors. And who, who was the older son? That would be the Pharisees and those who were teachers of the law there and complaining. And who is the community? That would be any others that are at the table with Jesus and sinners and tax collectors. And then who would the father be? Well, that would be Jesus. You see it? Jesus himself is the father in the story. Jesus is God, God in the flesh before the Pharisees. And he's the one that they are mad at. He's the one that they don't understand. And he's the shepherd then in verses 4 through 7. And he's the woman searching for the coin in verses 8 through 10. In fact, John chapter 12 in verse 45 reminds when Jesus said, Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. So when you're looking at Jesus, you are seeing the Father. So seeing this embrace uh, as central to our parable, the, the son, the younger son, and, and Jesus and the, as the Father, is realizing the third parable is about the love of the Father in the parable. And then it's good to ask and to clarify, well, then what is this love? What is God's love? The Greek word found for love over uh, is not found in uh, Luke 15. It's the Greek word agape. But the concept of that love is on full display. Now, we know that God loves. In fact, John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that word is agape. John chapter 15, verse 9, Jesus says, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Agape is the word used all three times there in John 15.9. So, that's the normal word the Bible uses when it's talking about particularly the love of God for humanity. So what is agape? What is God's love? But notice the question first. It's not what does God's love do? It's what is it? How is it defined? Often relate, we relate it to true love. Love is the mental attitude that demands that we do what is best for another in light of eternity no matter the cost. Or we could also stress and recognize that love is sacrificial. But these do not define love. They are what love does. What love does is powerful and amazing and flows out of what love is. But they are not the definition of love. In fact, they steer us, can steer us just a bit away from love when we think of it. The mental attitude that demands can sound cold and unemotional. Like God's hardwired, it's hardwired to principle, some automatic thing that kicks in, not really personal. The concept of sacrifice can be stressed at the expense of personal attachment as well. Sometimes we reduce God's love to a mechanical necessity, awesome for us, but not highly personal. He loves everyone. He has to. He is God, but he doesn't necessarily like us. You know, illustrate, if a man got his girlfriend pregnant, therefore he asked her to marry him. But do you love me? The girl asked him. Love? What's love got to do with it? He replied. Am I not doing the right thing by you? Maybe sometimes we think this is how God's love is toward us. He's just doing the right thing. And harboring these sentiments then about his love can be harmful to our Christian lives because it'll suck the joy out of it and thrust us toward non-grace reasoning. You see, the best way to define God's love, 
not what it does, but what it is, is to look it up in a dictionary. And the dictionaries of ancient Greek are called lexicons. So here are four leading lexicons that are used in seminaries and Bible schools. Um, one of them is the Bauer, Danker, Arndt, Gingrich, a Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament. Agape, the quality of warm regard for. Interest in another. Esteem. Affection. Love. The Laonida, Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, based on semantic domains, defines it agape. To have love for someone or something based on sincere appreciation and high regard. To regard with affection. Spiros Zadiades, the complete word study dictionary New Testament, agape. Love, affectionate regard, goodwill, benevolence, with reference to God's love, it is God's willful direction toward man. And lastly, the uh, Speak Seslas Ernest James Theological Lexicon of the New Testament defines agape as value set great store by, hold in high esteem, a love that seeks to be expressed or demonstrated. So God's agape love is about his affectionate and warm regard for you and for me, his goodwill toward us, and the desire to express or demonstrate this love toward you. This is how God views you and how he feels toward you, and he is not asking your permission for this. How valuable is it for you to know this, to understand that this is how God sees you? And once you grasp what agape love means, what it is, then it's easy to grasp what it does, how it insists on doing what is best for someone no matter the cost in light of eternity, how it is expressed through sacrifice for the sake of others. But start with what agape is. Understanding agape love and how God regards you with affection and warmth allows us to see his sacrifice and his insistence to do what is best for us as it's highly personal. It's for you. And there's nothing cold or mechanical about it. This is how God feels toward you. Yes, you right now. He is saying to you right now, whoever you are, wherever you are, you are the one that I love. And it's true. It's best not to resist that, friends. Be persuaded by the word of God. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, then the author John says, Behold, like, look what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. Look, an imperative. Let's stop and see this and behold this manner of love. I'm reminded how there was a Buddhist story that provides a really a great contrast to the Lord's parable here. It tells of a son who left home and he returned years later, but in rags and misery. And his degradation was so profound that he did not even recognize his own father. He was so disoriented. But his father recognized him. And so he told the servants to take him into the mansion and clean him up and, and give him some things to do. And the father, with his identity not revealed, he watched his son's response. And over time, how he saw the son begin to change. And the son became more dutiful and considerate and moral. And then when the father was satisfied with the changes in the behavior of the son, he revealed his identity and formally accepted his son as his heir. 
Now, the Pharisees, if they would have heard that story, would have understood it completely and approved of it. Can't you hear their loud applause? But that's not the Lord's story. That's not the parable that Jesus told. This Buddhist story is a parable of merits, but Jesus' story is a parable of unconditional love. This story is of love and of grace. And how can we behold the Father's love? Or excuse me, we will behold now the Father's love as we observe the story. I'm going to go off 11 points we can see things about God's love here. Number one, his love is not forced. The Father will not insist that his son stay home. When he said, give me my inheritance, the Father did so. Because he will not force his love on his beloved. Love involves volition, a willing choice, because it involves people and the and, and love will recognize the volition of the other so god loves knowing that people can choose pro or con or for and against and he loves even though there will be the choice against he loves like there's no such thing as a broken heart c.s lewis said it this way very well he said to love it all is to be vulnerable love anything and your heart will be wrung out and possibly broken if you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact or guarding your heart, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries and avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it'll change. It'll not be broken. It'll become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. You see, to love is to be vulnerable. The Father's love was not forced. It was vulnerable. Secondly, his love is patient. The Father waited. He hoped. Every day he was looking. Think of the high school teen that has a crush on someone in their class, a classmate, but that classmate's out of their league. You know, maybe it's the star jock or the popular cheerleader or some other popular person, very attractive or whatever. And that poor teen, he's not in any of those activities or in those circles. And, uh, you know, that person doesn't even know you exist, doesn't even know your name and so on. And yet that teen, if you were that teen, you dream you hope that they're going to see you and all of a sudden they're going to realize how awesome you are and so forth. Someday you'll notice me. Someday you'll see that I'm the one. Think of all the songs about this kind of theme. You know, you'll see that I was here. You know, that for that teen, that's not really good for them, is it? It's not really healthy for them. It's really unlikely that that person's ever going to notice them. It's unlikely that's ever going to happen. It's pretty irrational. It's illogical. You daydream your time away. But right there, that's God's love for us. That's God's love for the world. He hopes, he's patient, he's waiting, he's drawing, he's wooing. Even though many are not aware of his love, many will not respond to his love, many don't know who he is, his love for us isn't even very realistic as far as that goes, as far as our responding. But he loves, and he woos, and he waits, and he's patient, and he seeks to persuade, and he never stops. Love hopes all things, and he knows many also will indeed respond favorably. Oh, my son will return as he paced one day, I'm sure. Thirdly, his love is ready. He's ready to shower his love excessively on a willing recipient. God doesn't provide and say, no, first I want to impose a probationary period. I want to examine you like the other story we saw just a minute ago. Um, or, or I demand explanations and demonstrations of genuineness before me. 
No, he's ready to convince us of his love. He's ready to persuade us so we will believe. As we saw when the son came, the father went out and and was ready. He was anticipating that time. We see, fourthly, that the father's love is prodigal. (laughs) What does prodigal mean again? Remember, it's extravagant or luxurious. Uh, Ephesians 1, 19-29. What is the exceeding greatness of his power? In this case, it's power, but see the word exceeding greatness of his power. That's toward us who believe. According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ, when Christ was raised from the dead and he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, that every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Exceeding is the word. Ephesians chapter 2, just a few verses later, verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. A few verses later, Ephesians 2, 7, that in the ages to come, God might show his exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us. You see, we see the exceeding greatness of his power toward us. Now we see the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us. His rich mercy. Chapter 3 of Ephesians, verse 18 and 19, we read that Paul is praying that we might be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes or surpasses, exceeds knowledge. Same word. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In fact, one more verse, 2 Corinthians 9.14, Paul says there, And by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you prodigal love, prodigal grace, exceeding, extravagant, luxurious. This is his language. This is God's language. It's in the Bible. You know, I once got called out for describing it this way, and yet it's right there in the scriptures. This is prodigal love, extravagant and excessive. Number five, his love is emotional. The father had compassion, and he ran. And then he met his son. He was ready to pour that love out on him. And he kissed him and embraced him. And he kept on kissing him. And this is an emotional moment. In fact, how can this not be an emotional moment as we think of that scene? How how we have damaged the notion of love with our anti-emotion sentiments sometimes. I'm concerned about that. In fact, more than a century ago, Charles Hodge, in his systematic theology, he said, love of necessity involves feeling, and if there be no feeling in God, there can be no love. We must believe that God is love in the sense in which that word comes home to every human heart. The scriptures do not mock us when they say, Like as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities them that fear him. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, we're told that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, with all our strength. And the word soul is the Greek word nephesh, speaking of the inner self, the part of a person that thinks and feels and desires. Wills, desires, feels. So part of loving God with our whole heart, mind, and and strength must include our emotions. 
In fact, emotions are an important part of any relationship. If a husband and wife had nothing more than a cold intellectual love for one another, we would rightly conclude that their marriage was not very healthy. If the husband said, I have chosen to love you and I am committed to love you, but I don't have any particular feelings for you, do you think that the wife would be just, oh, that's wow, satisfied and so awesome? Would she even consider that love at all? Would God be satisfied from us with a merely intellectual love? Would not love incorporate all three aspects of our personhood? Would not love be incomplete without all three? We know emotions don't think, so we are not to be led by them. But it is awesome to have them. They're from God. You know, the thinking doesn't feel. So interactions and relationships should not be just intellectual. Some emotions, we are told, we're to learn to not let them control us or dominate us. And that's true. But that doesn't mean never being relaxed about having them or expressing them. We're human. That's how God made us. And God loves with passion, and with, with, with all that he is. And it includes emotion. When it says the father had compassion upon his son, that speaks of an inner visceral emotion. His love is scandalous. Number six, he ran. He ran, which is an embarrassing thing for, for men to do in that, that, that culture, as we saw. And yet he absorbs the son's shame and gives the son his honor in that embrace. And right in public, it's scandalous what he did. He, he accepted a sinful son with no questions asked, just as he was. And he made it clear publicly that the boy was his son. Grace is love that pays a price. There's public humiliation here. Why did Jesus go to the cross and make the sacrifice he made for us? Because we're told in Romans 5, 8, that's a demonstration of his love. Sacrifice is the expression of love. Sacrifice is the fruit of love. Sacrifice is the evidence of love. But sacrifice is not love in and of itself. There is so much more to God's love than the sacrifice. There is his affection, the way we described it and defined it earlier. And these things all combine as what his love is. Scandal was in the air as the father ran. People could have seen that as foolish action. You know, Isaiah 53.3 reminds us of the prophecy of Jesus when he was on, going to be, you know, go to the cross, how he was despised and rejected by men. And he was despised, and we did not esteem him. In other words, we saw him, Isaiah is saying, as a loser, hanging there on the cross. Scandalous, humiliating. God's love is scandalous. Seventh, his love is unconditional. He forgives without asking questions when he meets his son. There's no, there's no interrogation. He forgives Without asking questions, it's the opposite of what you might expect. In fact, we would expect the son to fall to the ground and kiss the father's feet. But the parable of the prodigal son is a story that speaks about a love that existed before any rejection was even possible. And that love will still be there after all the rejections have taken place. Like we brought out, what if the prodigal left again another day later? That love would still be there. The The fact that the parable is, is not completed you know, at the end of, of, of the parable, it's like, well, how does it end? Makes it certain that the father's love is not dependent upon an appropriate completion of the story. And the father's love is not withheld until appropriate words are expressed, as we see here. 
with this younger son in the embrace. You know, David sinned against God, as we know. We even went over that in a few podcasts earlier. And David repented, and in his repentance, in Psalm 51, 12, we read, he says, Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. If the son repented in the pig fields here in our parable, and then came back, as we had discussed as well, it would seem to fit better than to say, the son could say, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. But then that wouldn't be as unconditional, would it? You see, the unconditional love, we really collapse in the marvel of his love when we see how completely unworthy of it we are. We are. How unconditional it is. Restore unto me your salvation. It starts with you. It's of you. It's by you. And everything is accredited to you, Lord. Eighth, his love is compelling. It's compelling. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 14 says, for we love, for the, excuse me, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. The point, the love of Christ compels us. It stirs us. It moves us. It triggers us. It does something. The love of Christ is powerful, and it moves our hearts, and it strikes at our soul, and it melts us, and it is the essence of change and of hope, this amazing love showered down upon us, undeserving as we are. Knowing you are loved in Christ is powerful. Knowing you are known and accepted in him, is, that can, is that's life-changing. Being treated in grace motivates us to respond and to move in the grace's direction. We don't respond to criticism and judgment. Rarely does pounding on us bring that kind of change. We are Why we are uh, often we're so driven and convinced that telling people that they are wrong, that that's the way to bring about real change in the world, why do we do that despite it almost never working? But God's love is real, and it compels us, and it can change us. And you can be, we are overwhelmed by it. We can be moved by it, impacted in the mind and in the soul and the emotions, and it compels us, and we respond. This is called worship, and it will involve your whole being, including your emotions. Worship involves emotions, open praise and expression of joy to God's love shouting how he's worthy, enjoying that love. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 20 and 21, we read of uh, the children of Israel after the spectacular victory God gave them at the Red Sea and the parting of the sea. And on the other side, Miriam and some of the women, it says, Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron in Exodus 15, 20 through 21, it says that she took the timbrel in her hand and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Music, singing, dancing, worship. Remember Michael, when David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to the, into the city of Jerusalem? He was going to introduce it and put it there, and the Lord had given him approval of that, and he was so delighted. And there was such spontaneous worship as they were bringing it into town, and he was, the Bible says, leaping and dancing. Uh, and he was so excited, the spontaneous worship. And his wife, Michael, looked down upon that from a window and despised him. She didn't understand that. So we see there's worship here. In fact, in, in, in the parable in John in, the, in Luke 15, it says the father had compassion 
ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Compassion, I mentioned that earlier, but that word means to feel deeply or viscerally, which, is, which means inward feelings. You see, we worship God because he's worthy. We worship him regardless of how we feel. We worship him because he deserves it, not because it makes us feel a certain way. But God had this inward feeling and pity and passion and desire and love. And to have that part of our worship, that's okay. In fact, worship devoid of feeling is not somehow more pure or spiritual. In fact, maybe it's less so. How can we stand and speak or sing of God's greatness and his amazing love and feel nothing? The Father's love and compassion are central to the movement of the parable, and so is his emotion. And so his love, which is that which compels us and draws us and changes us from the inside out, we respond freely, and there's emotion involved. Number nine, God's love is not partial. He has no favorites. He loves equally. The father has, uh, in the parable, had two sons. And when we see the celebration going on with the first son, the second son appears, and he doesn't understand it. But both are beloved sons. And he sees with love the passion of his younger son. He, he has passion and love for the younger son as well as for the older. He sees the, the, with love the passion of his younger son, even when his younger son's passion was not regulated by obedience. With the same love, he sees the obedience of the older son, even when that obedience was not vitalized by any passion or life. You know, God loves all of his children and knows them and, and approaches them and, and works with them individually. Do you ever think, oh, God might love him or her, some other Christian you know, but not so much me? They seem to have it all together, and I rarely do. They're doing great, I don't know about me. And we compare and we put out a pecking order and we think God loves them more. Now there is no place for that. I'm just telling you right now, that is wrong thinking, non-grace, and that you have a bad caricature of who God is in your mind. May he persuade you that he loves you and that he's not partial. And the father loves both of his sons, as different as they are. They have different personalities and strengths and weaknesses. They're in different places in their life. But God knows them both, loves them both, and adapts his love for each one. In fact, each son starts from the field and then returns home. Each son returns in their own ways. But each son returns to the house with a servant mentality. Each son expects to be paid for services rendered. Each son insults the father. Each son breaks relationship with the father on a deep level. Each son seeks to manipulate the father in order to serve their own interests. Each son wants the wealth of the estate to spend on his own pleasure. Each son becomes part of a different community separate from the father's. And yet each son receives a costly public demonstration of the father's amazing love. And each son is welcome into the celebration. The younger son, he sees his unworthiness and accepts this incredible love. The older son sees he is worthy of more, deserving. And he resents this careless love and rejects it. The younger son comes to the outskirts, is met by the father, and he does not resist the father's love. He's overwhelmed by it, rather. And the older brother comes to the near to the house, and he's met by the father, but he resists him, complains, and is not willing to be found. The younger will come but wants to be a servant. The older comes as a servant and wants a reward. 
They don't understand the Father. But love is offered. And when love is accepted, you're found. Number 10, love is intimate. It's very personal and relational. Notice the words of the father. My son, you are with me to the older son, to the older brother. He says, my son, you are with me always and all I have is yours. Expressing this true relationship. And so the father is saying that <clears throat> you are welcome into my, my harmony, my peace, my fellowship. All that I have is yours. And in that hug, that the younger son embraced and received that where the older son rejected it. A.B. Simpson said, one touch of him is worth a lifetime of struggling. That's the power of God's love when we allow it to find us. God loves each of us as if there were only one of us, says Augustine. So to crave this love, to enjoy this love, to behold this love is not spiritual narcissism, be careful of that kind of sentiment. That's an ungraced perspective. If you focus on how God loves you and you focus on his loving of you constantly, you will be refreshed. You will learn how to walk in love, according to Ephesians 5.2. You'll never be separated from the love of God, Romans 8. You'll ha have security as you enjoy and understand this love. In fact, the first fruit of the Spirit is love. That is something you can then understand that. Our ability to love others, in fact, is enabled by his love for us. And we'll be known to others, as Jesus said. Others will know you by your love. And our love for God, we love him because he first, it's triggered, he first loved us. And God's love is infinite and undeserving and passionate. Why wouldn't I want to be drawn in by that and focus on that? In fact, what is the downside of a believer knowing or experiencing too much of God's love? Where in the Bible are we warned that focusing too much on God's love is dangerous? God is love. We're told in 1 John 4, love is his chief attribute when it comes to our relating to him and approaching him and knowing him. Our relationship is back and forth. It's centered on his love. And that love was demonstrated to us and always will be for us. So he is in us as a Christian. He is in you via the Holy Spirit. And you and I, we are in him positionally if we're saved and we are in a relationship with him forever. We are his children, and he's our loving father. This is why it has been said God loves you more in a moment than anyone could in a lifetime. So yes, plunge in. Learn of that grace. Grow in the grace and the love of him and take in his truth. And finally, number 11, his love is inviting. The Pharisees are standing there at the end of the parable. How does it end? An invitation is given. What will they do? What's that choice is before them? Will they believe him or resist him? You know, we apply this then to the unbeliever, those who are, have never been saved. And we could say, what will you do? May I encourage you to be persuaded that he loves you, that that's why Jesus came and he died for you and he took all of your sin and he paid for all of it and then was buried and rose again. And he's a resurrected living Savior. And there's nothing else left to do in regard to your sins. And the door is open. You can trust him now, be persuaded, consent to be found and to be loved. By faith, you will trust what Christ has done for you, and you will not perish, but have eternal life. To the saved, to those who are children and know him already, may we also respond to him at all points in our life because he loves us. And we can abide in this love, as John 15 tells us, to abide in his love, verse 9. 
And Jude 21 reminds us, keep yourself in the love of God, abiding, stay, walk in this amazing truth. What an advantage in life for us to know that we are loved and accepted by him. You are not what others think you are. You are what God knows you are. And by faith, you can know who you are. And only by faith can you then become who you really are as God enables you as you walk in love. And this is all by grace, attached to the death and the resurrection of Christ on our behalf. We'll never deserve it, but we can wallow in it and enjoy it and just stay in it. Now, hopefully, just looking quickly at all these things about the Father and His love in this parable, we have a better understanding of what God's love is. May we appreciate it all the more and be willing to respond to it. And know what? You know what? It's never going to change. It's an unchangeable love. It never stops. It's always one way of love toward you, unrelenting, that we, when it finds us, can respond back to Him by faith. This love, <laughs> this is amazing. And hopefully, we're all triggered. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing love. May we understand it better, allow it to find us in whatever state we are in, and may we believe it and desire to abide in it. Thank you for, the, for first loving us and demonstrating that love on the cross of Jesus, there fully eliminating all our sin and our shame. Lord, persuade us every day, and may we thank you every day for you and your love. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening again. And until next time, remember, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is always 